I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Good morning, everyone. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. And I am here with Pam Feinberg Rifkin of the Feinberg Consulting Group. She is actually the founder in 1996, really a pioneer in the world of concierge behavioral health care. And I'm really excited to have Pam with me today to find out more about how she got involved and what she's doing and how this whole really interesting system works. So, Pam, thank you for coming and uh, joining me this morning. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. So, you have been doing this since 96 you started. Yes, 1996. <laughs> 1996. <laughs> yeah, I actually started um, as a case manager, solo case manager, working with some really medically complex injuries in Michigan. And what that entailed were, were people who were injured catastrophically in automobile accidents and built the model based on that with the complexity of someone, if you can only imagine going from the intensive care unit with brain injury or spinal cord injury and the trauma and the emotional and the physical trauma that someone and their family goes through, coordinating all of the specialties that were required to bring them along in their life so that they could have a better life. That's really interesting. It actually explains a lot because I think when you're dealing with that level of complexity, the levels of acuity that come from someone who is severely medically compromised is going to require a lot of specialized care and a lot of specialized follow-up. I imagine after that, elements of behavioral health care are slightly less challenging or maybe challenging in a way that's different, but you've already been to the management of conditions that really are like life-threatening. Exactly. And so when we have a behavioral health situation, we're actually many times finding the medically complex situations along with the behavioral health because of their where their addiction may have taken them or where their, their mental health diagnoses and or symptoms for years have taken them, sometimes due to the medications that they've taken, sometimes due to the risks they, and that they've taken in their life. And their whole complex, looking at the whole entire body, brain, heart, emotion, 
spirituality, the whole entire system of somebody and their family and how it all affects their family is something that comes natural to us because of the systems that we were able to build and the the situations that we've come across. In the world of behavioral health care, I view these kind of concierge teams as something that appears to be more relatively new. Like in the last 10 years, did I hear about teams of interventionists, recovery coaches, groups that were working together? And so it's interesting that you've been doing this since 1996, really close to 30 years. Yes. I imagine when you started, there were not really a lot of people in the space doing anything similar to what you ultimately set up. No, no. I I guess we were privileged in that regard because what was available to us in Michigan was a reimbursement from the auto carriers to so that there was a business model that we could be paid under. And then as we saw the obviously the need and the, the seeking out the people that can afford private pay, so different than, you know, someone's being reimbursed by insurance, that understanding that no matter the socioeconomic status of someone, still needing those complex concierge level services to get them through the medical and the behavioral and the uh, substance use disorder models and or, or treatment to get somebody to a place where they have a life that they can live out their their life of purpose their the to be able to be healthy and uh, in order to then continually looking at what other ways that they can get healthy you know pam i'm thinking about those early days and there you are kind of on your own or with your your team and you're navigating you said it was auto carriers and i'm assuming what you mean is like car insurance yes like geico or state right. farm or whatever exactly triple a <laughs> and so these are the payers while you're kind of quarterbacking case managing on the medical side what the services are that this patient is going to need. And to me, I'm picturing people with a lot of closed head injuries, things like this, uh, maybe clients that are very compromised in different ways. And quite frankly, from where I'm sitting, it just sounds like a lot of really heavy lifting. It is a lot of heavy lifting. So some people may have 20 physicians that they go to because they may have a closed head injury, they may have multiple burns, they may have a spinal cord injury, and they may have multiple fractures, they may have dental issues that are traumatic, I mean, they've lost teeth, um, they may have lost their vision, or their vision is uh, is been has been affected by their brain injury. Uh, so it, it's, it is, and then of course, you bring in a psychiatrist, because the closed head injury requires many, many times um, a uh, mood stabilizer or 
something to prevent seizures, which also is a mood stabilizer, you know, utilization of a mood stabilizer. And then you have bring in addictionologists because they become addicted to some of the pain medication or and or their accident was a result of their addiction to begin with. And it just escalates because of their injuries. So it is very complex ongoing. We have managed people for 20 plus years sometimes because of the care that's needed. A lot of that are people with these chronic comorbid medical, psychiatric, maybe even three conditions, right? Exactly. Or multiple medical, psychiatric, substance use disorder, complex cases, many of whom are chronic. And I imagine if you're working with someone for 20 years, we're not talking about searching for a cure, right? We're talking about the management of someone and trying to keep them in the least restrictive environment possible. Exactly. Which is also really important. And I think economically sound, because even though these services may be costly, they're definitely not as costly as institutionalization and long-term hospitalizations, not not even a fraction, right? No. I mean, long-term hospitalizations doesn't, you know, they don't exist anymore. But long-term nursing homes, unfortunately, nursing homes do not, are not able to care for people like that. We have people, we have, I've had as young as, a you know, a baby, less than a year old, that we're still managing. He's in his teens now because of a closed head injury. So when you think about the long-term effects and and the long-term sometimes effects of people with closed head injury or substance use disorder, we know that they go into the prison system in their you know later teen life or their young adult life if there's nothing else in their life, and that happens in the um, with alcoholism and drug addiction. They don't find help before they get into a prison system at at times, and if they don't have the family support which is so important. And then families are in so many different levels of where they're going to be at emotionally to be with somebody that has gone through all that too. I think that speaks to also the members of your team. And I know a lot of people who work with you and are part of your team now or have been part of your team in the past. And I really kind of think of you guys as like the Yankees, Mm -hmm. you know, with like the best free agents in the game, Mm -hmm. in a sense, as far as in our world of behavioral health care. And I think what you just expressed about the level of complexity of what you deal with, it makes a lot of sense that you really have to employ the most capable people because it's heavy lifting and requires this high degree of professionalism. Yeah. You know, when you're diving in that deep on things that are these conditions that are severe in nature, right? People aren't calling you for problems that are uncomplicated. No. Our, our clients that are referred to us are very, very complicated. The family systems are complicated. 
And many times now we're getting, because we're, we're known for the complexities and the concierge level of service that we can provide and the teams that we have, so we're getting people with medical, behavioral health addiction all combined and to we have the teams we have the medical teams i am a registered nurse and have had years of experience in the behavioral health field and addiction field and with that with that we also have other medical nurses we have a physician that addiction physician that we consult with um, and we also have obviously we consult on the outside as well to bring in anybody and who can provide us some guidance. But we, we work with all ages, all complexities, and sorting out and just looking at what else can happen because we don't always find that that treatment center or what may work for this particular situation. So we have to take it in stages. Like let's treat the most the most severe situation right now. What is the most complex situation now? Where does that person belong now? And then as they stabilize that, then where is the next step? And keep going to through the stages and steps of where they're going to be. It may start out with hospitalization for psychiatric admission for, under a Baker Act. And then, okay, they were Baker Acted because it could have been substance use disorder, substance, substance induced or it might have been that they were off medications and they just had they had a, a psychosis unrelated to substances. But either way, we need to stabilize them and then figure out where they go next. And if they have medical complications on top of that, then deciphering who can handle those medical complications. I think that speaks to something that probably a lot of people are familiar with in a different way, which is... Any of us that have had the experience of having a close family member or loved one enter into a hospital for some complicated condition know that your patient, your loved one, really requires an advocate. Hmm, absolutely. You got to kind of, there's got to be a family member or somebody or a close friend or someone around to kind of oversee things because people make mistakes and you just want to hold accountable the team that's caring for them and just make sure that their needs are being met because often the sick person will have difficulty articulating or even understanding what their own needs are when they're unwell. When you're navigating a system of care or significant needs that maybe we don't even clearly understand or how they interrelate, you're now going beyond what a family member could provide, especially when the problems are behavioral, because patients with behavioral problems, part of their symptomology is that they will actively, physically sabotage their mm -hmm. treatment mm -hmm. by doing things like running away from their environments of care and right. <laughs> things like this or becoming very combative. And I'm just scratching the surface mm -hmm. on the multitude of possibilities for the way a creative individual with a psychiatric disorder and substance use disorder could really make themselves difficult to help. So when you talk about this professional and specialized team 
that helps these clients navigate their care, gets them into the right places, helps oversee and provide advocacy for the clients while they're in their treatment environments, helps to navigate and create the plan for aftercare so that they can sustain and maintain them in lower levels of care, uh, do everything that's possible to prevent recidivism and returns to, res- I mean, it's a lot of different things. It's, it's really looking ahead, anticipating what could be. It may not happen, but anticipating. You know, if you know a certain scenario has happened and the family can give you a history or what's going on, then picking up those little cues to say, oh, this is what's needed in addition to this is a treatment plan, this is a treatment center, and this is extra stuff, extra things that we may need. It may mean that it's a male caregiver that's overseeing somebody because of something that someone has done or acted out with a female, but knowing and anticipating that so that you can prevent. And those are things that you don't really see or know for sure that it's that we've actually been a help to. We don't only hear the things that go awry, right? In all of our behavioral health, it's like, okay, we didn't do this right. But when something is really done right and smooth, it's kind of, well, that's the normal thing that should have happened, but it doesn't always happen that way. And most of the time actually doesn't happen that way because there are a lot of things to be considered in our, our in somebody's behavioral space. There's a lot that someone's, um, someone's triggers can do for them. Absolutely. What we, uh, what Jeff Bezos would refer to as complexifiers. <laughs> so, again, back to the members of your team, and maybe by throwing out a few names, you're sort of explaining what their roles are. We can maybe get anyone who's listening to this, perhaps like a better picture of how this works. Mm-hmm. So, Kristen Byrne, mm-hmm. she is. She's a clinical manager. She's had years of experience. You know, you've worked with her in the substance use disorders field. She's really good at fam- working with families, working with uh, with females and males as well, but working with them and, and holding them accountable and, and calling them out in regard to what potentially they don't see that they're doing that may be sabotaging their son or daughter's recovery and something that identifying really what maybe a family member can do for themselves in order to help take care of themselves, which will then help the person who is the client, so to speak, the person of concern that's brought in. So as I said, she's had um, plenty of, a lot of years of experience. She does our assessments along with a case manager, um, and we have two people who are involved in the assessments and the clinical managers. Kristen's one of them. Okay. And that's, so I know that Kristen has like a supervisory or management capacity. And it sounds like she's also heavily involved in the screening and 
I guess, the triage of new cases that are coming in and sort of figuring out. Well, actually, Michael Perlman is now doing that. Um, oh, okay. And so Michael is our uh, vice president of clinical services, um, and he's involved in this, a lot of the screening that comes in. Um, our intake is Thatcher, um, is one of the, the first line of people and wonderful years of uh, recovery and recovery coaching experience in being with families and um, understanding Dylan and then Scott also, those are people who bring in the intakes and then run it by uh, Michael. And um, I may become involved if it's there's some medical issues going on or some complexities. And my business partner, Steve Feldman, also is involved in the, the triage. So as you kind of break that down, there's a lot of people mm-hmm. on the team. And it sounds like it's very much a system of how new cases are being assessed and assigned to exactly. the different providers on the team yeah and there, when michael as the vice president of clinical services gets the intake and if the family has decided to work with us then he looks at the the complexities of the situation of what's going on and assigns two people a clinical manager and a case manager and some of this because we do work um both you know in the country as well as out of the country some of the that work is done virtually some of it is in person if the per- if we have an office here in Delray Beach we have an office in West Bloomfield Michigan however a lot of you know things are being done uh virtually as well um if something has to be in person and the person's out of the area of where our offices are we fly someone to the site to be with the family and intervene on the person with the family. But a lot of the prep work is done virtually. I could see how Michael Perlman would be very effective in that capacity. I actually worked with him for a few years at Karen. We've partnered on a couple of cases together. Mm -hmm. He's a really bright guy and he's also pragmatic and thoughtful And he's got the strong DBT background, which means that a lot of the cases that he was working with when we were working together were people who were severely personality disordered Mm -hmm. or had other mental health concerns or were just behavioral in some sense. And he was always really, really good at navigating and dealing with people who were very could be very difficult. Right. And it was really amazing because some of these clients were people who wouldn't talk to anybody else. Mm-hmm. They only wanted to talk to Michael, you know, and he was like the family therapist. So he was primarily supposed to be working with their families, but they're like, I, we don't care. I don't care. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to talk to Michael. So he was that guy mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of these, these cases. So I could really see how he would be effective in that role in terms of being able to anticipate who is going to be the best personality and skill set match for the clients that are, that are coming in. And he's matched to, I mean, he's been able to really match well with people and then and come in when needed um, in, in regard to if some he needs to go somewhere, um, start something immediately. He jumps right in um, 
because you know some of our situations you know if someone's baker acted and and the before the weekend and the weekend's over and they're ready to go somewhere we need to step in really quickly and identify a plan for the family and so you actually have an intervention team as well yes that will go to wherever things are happening work with a family work with a client who maybe does not want help or isn't motivated to receive help and sort all of those details out and find a placement for them that's appropriate and hopefully work through work with this family through this crisis of getting someone to accept help that maybe doesn't necessarily want it at the moment but probably really needs it right how does that work well, we, we, when we take a call, uh, we determine it, it's going to be an intervention, but we don't know what is the intervention, is what it's going to entail until we start the assessment. And the assessment starts with the family. So the family decides to work with us. We as, uh, Michael will assign um, two people to do the assessment. And he's very involved in as well. And we he and the two people who are doing the assessment, and if we know it's an intervention, we'll bring an interventionist into the planning stage and determine how is what is the process or what is the uh, way that the intervention is going to take place. Is it going to be sometimes the family needs the person to get to the hospital because they're unsafe in the home with this person. So it is about directing and being with the family to get them Baker acted and then going to the hospital and working with the discharge planning at the hospital to the next stage. Sometimes it means working with the family planning a formal intervention, the person going into the home of the, where they plan to go for the intervention and really the whole planning stage is two or three family meetings to be able to really hone in and determine how to, and re- re- reading letters, writing letters, and prepping the family so that the person sitting there listening will accept going to treatment so that they will understand that they need help. Um, they may have felt like they didn't need help until the letters are written and they see that there's people of influence in the room that they they really have decided that this is what they really need. So they'll go with the interventionist to the treatment and we fly them to wherever it is decided that they will go. And then there are times when the family is prepped and they say, hey, you know, we're going to invite this person to our next meeting because we think that they really know that they need help and they'll come to the next meeting. And then it's it's really worked with you doing an assessment on that person directly and determining who where is the best place for them. And we always ask the family, are you willing financially and willing to have this person go to treatment A versus treatment B or C? Because we don't want to talk to the client about treatment A and then you say, no, we can't afford it. So we always have to plan for the family <coughs> to be sure to be sure that the family is on board with everything. I think assessing something like that is just probably part of the deal, right? Yeah. With that said, in the intervention process, you're really starting with them at the very beginning. And when you talk about letter writing, you're talking about these written 
forms of communication that are going to be read to the potential client here that are communicating certain elements in order to avoid things that are going to be provocative and judgmental because we want to come from like this loving place, right? Exactly. And a place of concern as opposed to a place of judgment or or something. Do your interventionists subscribe to a specific intervention style? I know there's a few different ones that are kind of in vogue at the moment. People talk about Arise or or these uh, different methodologies. Do you have a preferred system? I can tell you that I've I've been trained in uh, Love First, Arise, and Brad Lamb. So three different inter- intervention ways, and it ours is a combination of them. There may be times that we use more of the Arise method, um, and then more of the Love First method. But it is about really not determining this is the way we're going to do it because each family and each person is so different. So that that's why I really wanted to expose myself to many so that we could set up a way to assess and determine which path we go down. That makes the most sense to me because when you're dealing with this level of complexity, you probably don't want to marry yourself to one system of intervention, you probably want an arsenal of things to choose from. Right. I'm assuming that in your experience, there are systems that work better for different kinds of cases and different kinds of families. Absolutely. You know, we're, as humans, we're so different. And as family systems, we're so different. Some of them act or or around the same some things are very similar that obviously we they show up and like we're familiar with this and and someone fits in one of those categories of of where or how to go about it and there are times that we slow the intervention down if it's if it's not life-threatening of course um, and we slow it down to determine really what else is possible so that we're looking at different angles and really being able to identify so that it goes smoothly when it does happen versus coming in really quickly and then it blowing apart. And there have been, unfortunately, you know, you know that there have been people affected poorly by the type of intervention or how it was people were intervened on or the anger that it came up, the shame, the whatever's happened. And, and, and then it could be years before they get help after that. I think the one thing that all interventions have in common is the person being intervened upon tends not to enjoy them. <laughs> no, but to your point, I definitely know people who have been severely negatively impacted by intervention, I think the fact of the matter is that most people don't want to be told what to do or feel like they're being told what to do. So the hope is always that we want to have you walk away from this with the feeling that you were given a series of choices and you made the best one under adverse circumstances. I feel like that's the best way to walk into a treatment Mm -hmm. situation, a treatment episode out of an intervention, 
if it can happen mm-hmm. and it can't always happen. But if it can, that's kind of the best is you want to feel like this was my choice and ultimately presented with these options. I chose this because I want to do the right thing for myself and my family. I want to help myself. Is Thatcher one of the interventionists? Yes, actually Thatcher is. And he is really good with with the families and the person of concern. Um, he is at times that, you know, when things are kind of not going well in the intervention in regard to the person saying, no, 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 he'll take a walk with them and be able to really be with them in a way that they can turn around. And it uh, doesn't always happen. And at the same time, you know, there's been, I've been with Thatcher and some interventions that most of the time go really, really well. And, you know, there was one that didn't go well. And I, I think, unfortunately, the, the family, the father was doing his own thing aside from what we had planned. And we can't always plan what somebody's going to do on the side. Families hire us as professionals and we hope they hire us to listen to us, but sometimes they have their own agenda too. Well, that's the thing with family systems that make them what they are, is that every system is unique. And sometimes when you're dealing with a client with this identified pathology that you're trying to address, you discover the closer you look at the system they come from, that they're not the only person who has significant behavioral and emotional problems. And it's often the emotional and behavioral problems of other people, character problems of other people that will impact our ability to bring uh, a very unwell individual to help. And mm-hmm. sometimes, quite frankly, there are secondary gains in family systems for people remaining sick. And that, for me, working with this population has been one of the most difficult things to sort of reconcile over the years because you see people sabotage potential recovery mm-hmm. for someone because they're following some agenda that we just really can't even wrap our minds around why you sure. would do what you're doing. Right. So Thatcher's that guy, I think they're rare, who can really kind of hang in there when things start to go sideways and not lose your cool and salvage a situation that has gone sideways mm-hmm. and messy. And my business partner, Steve Feldman, too. I mean, I, he's he is in there with the families, too, and is very, um, very astute and good in regard to being with that person. And I know families like to look at it a certain way, and sometimes it's not exactly the way we want it to be. There, there was a family that I worked with that I remember Kristen was involved in, in this actually as well, and that they expected the person to come with their fiance to the intervention location. And they called, she called the father and said, you're doing an intervention on me, aren't you? And he panicked and gave me the phone. And I said, yeah, we're doing an intervention. Would you come? And she came and went to treatment. So honesty is actually very important. We have to instill a strong sense of safety and a strong sense of trust. (laughs) Trust. Well, I think to your point, and I think it speaks to your experience, that these problems that the clients will often have on the back end with the resentment and the anger 
you can mitigate that to a degree by being as direct and upfront and honest with them as possible in the beginning, because that's one of the big resentments that people have is that they feel betrayed and lied to by the people who were claiming to help them. Right. And that could be very difficult for people to overcome ultimately. Right. So it creates that sort of betrayal, moral injury, which is just an unfortunate casualty often inflicted by people who are very well intentioned. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It just happens. And then there's a lot of repair after that. On the cases themselves, the working day-to-day with people who are in the system, who are already in their environments of care, who are working their care plans, what does that look like? Like if I'm a client of Feinberg Consulting, I've been to treatment, maybe I'm coming to the end of it, it's time to start planning my aftercare. How are you guys involved in that? That's a good question. We as our clinical manager and our case manager work with the treatment pro- plan, the treatment program, that could be communicating with the therapist, the lead therapist, could be a discharge planner in the treatment program as well, um, being able to be a part of the team meeting to talk about what's happened in treatment, what are their recommendations. We don't want to come up with definitely a different plan than what they've, because they've been there for maybe 30 days at the minimum to maybe even six months. So we want to know what's happened, what's transpired, where they're at now, and then where they need to go. Does that include an intensive outpatient program, coaching, a companion because they're still really not doing well? Do they need some help medically? Do they need a, a psychiatrist? Do they need another physician for you know, a medical problem, a cardiac or a diabetes problem they have. So being able to identify what those components are and then setting up those plans and appointments and following through with getting them to those providers. So it may mean that part of it is uh, on us as coaches. Family coach could be one of our coaches uh, involved with the family as well. Getting the family to an intensive um, or coaching the family to a at a point where they identify they need an intensive or um, that they need to go away for an intensive or you know being able to have a one-on-one intensive done by one of our our staff as well um, that's something that we can do as well identifying when the best time for that to happen it's a lot of components yeah <laughs> and it involves a lot of different people Right, Because on one hand, you have the treatment center itself and the care team at the center who will provide recommendations. You have a family who also have their expectations or understanding of what this is and what they are hoping to see occur. And you have this client who is trying to figure out what their needs are and where they're looking to go on the recovery journey and maybe even kind of walking out of this treatment center on Bambi legs into the real world, sober, stable, and what what help do I even need? And what help will I accept? And what feels like too much help? And all of these different things. You have as part of the care team, family advocates, family coaches that work with the family members while the clients themselves are in the, uh, the yeah. treatment environment. Yeah. For sure, because the family, you know, the, the treatment, the, the 
person of concern or the client, our client is getting their intensive work done in treatment and the family is on the outside, um, on the outside of the treatment, wondering what's happening. What, what do I do? When do I come in? What, you know, because they've been so involved probably up to that point, then all of a sudden, what do they do? And having that coaching so that they're not taking the calls of the person in treatment saying, I want out of here, being able to, to coach the person, the family and saying, don't pick them up. You need to leave them there. This is what you can do for yourself to take care of yourself during this, to take your mind off from the person because they're okay. I trust, you know, you got to trust me that they're okay. I'll look in on them for and let you know for sure so that there's a second eye, but we know that they're going to be okay and you need to be okay in another way. One of your family advocates is uh, Amy D'Archangelo. Yeah. And I worked with her in that capacity, really as a family therapist in a treatment center. So she and I were partnered. She would be working with the family. I would be working with the client. She was a really amazing partner Mm -hmm. and a great person to work with from a team perspective. It's just really comforting when you have somebody who you know can collaborate well with that. And she was amazing with those families too. The things that she could say to people, I'll tell you like a little story, an Amy story. Uh She's going to kill me, but (laughs) it's okay. You know, um, so there was this one, there's a young man that we had that was new in the treatment environment, but he had been to many, many before. So he's kind of a slick fellow who'd been in a lot of treatment environments and sort of knew how to work people, definitely knew how to work and manipulate his parents. And the parents came in and they were pretty imposing people, outspoken, critical, very much aligned with their child, not really seeing the manipulations in the way that we did. Mm-hmm. And the whole situation was a little anxiety provoking, tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. They were coming into town. We had the parents, the client, there's me, there's Amy, and it seems to be going pretty well. Everyone seems to be getting along. The parents seem happy. The client seems happy. I'm like, ah, oh, this is great. And Amy does not appear happy, right? <laughs> She's got a look on her face. I'm like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And so... The mom says, I'm so impressed with how clean the apartment is. He's doing a really good job keeping the apartment clean. And then the young man is beaming. And Amy looks at them both and says, your son is 28 years old. What do you expect his apartment to look like? <laughs> and why are your expectations for him so low? And, and it was true. It really was the correct thing to say to these people. And honestly, I reflect back on that moment because it made me think very differently about this whole dynamic. And she Mm -hmm. was right. Mm -hmm. There were just a handful of people, you know, not everybody can get away with doing something like that and still maintain the interaction. She has compassion when she's saying something. She doesn't say it in a mean way. She just says it in a way that is just so, the person is drawn in. It's like, really? You know, she can say it. (laughs) Totally. She she can, and it's because of those reasons. And those people didn't get mad. They weren't upset. They just stopped for a second in their tracks and thought about what it was that they were hearing. 
And the truth of the matter is, she was right. Mm -hmm. And even though they may not have liked that whole interaction, I know that they walked away from it thinking differently about it because it was reflected in our future interactions that this idea that over time their adult child had created in them a set of very low expectations with his behavior. And that whole dynamic was a huge problem and a barrier to his recovery Mm. because they just never expected him to be responsible for anything age appropriate. And what's the message that sends to someone? We don't think you're capable of much. And that's really where she was coming from. And if I was that person, I might not like it, but I'd really want someone to tell me. Right, right. Because it's all all of their perspective that can be changed that will change then their expectations of him to be greater and she, for him to be greater. She was a great person to work with. And I, I she was a great partner. And I, I learned a lot from her. So like when I said about your team, mm-hmm. you know, the Yankees with Kristen and Michael and Amy, uh, even some former people that have worked with you in the past, Michael Cardinal, I know and work with. I, I, I think really highly of him. He's a great guy. And uh, Tom Gentry, yeah. who really taught me everything I know about podcasting. I wouldn't be here doing this with you today <laughs> if not for him. So it's like your organization has attracted a lot of really strong talent. Well, I love to see people that come to us with, as you say, they need experience. They need to be in the trenches. They need to do the hard work in order to be with us because it is, you know, it is a different type of work than working in a treatment center. But yeah, it is, it's the hard work. It's the knowledge, the experience to be able to say that to, to a family member, to make change, to create change, to, you know, we're not here just to move along and do just an okay job. We're here to create excellence in people's lives. And I want, you know, people's lives can be better. And if they just work with the right people and listen, obviously listening to what may be said and having that dialogue so that they can experience something different. That was cool. That was really well stated. When I started doing the podcast itself, the motivation of it was really to see if I could in this format bring in these exceptional people in behavioral health and talk to them and really feel like we could project an intimate knowledge of the person and their motivations and inspirations for how they are helping other people and why and, you know, how you got involved in this. Like, where did something like Feinberg Consulting even come from? Because in 1996, no one was thinking about doing what you did. I don't think they were. If they were, I didn't know about them. (laughs) And they definitely weren't doing them in Florida. And now there are, you know, like we said before, a number of these kind of concierge teams doing doing different things, great things. Mm -hmm. And so... I really appreciate this opportunity to get to know you a little bit personally. Uh, It's a big deal to me that you're come here and willing to do this. You're not a person who's very busy on social media, you know, posting things. I, I see you as kind of more 
sort of private and like that. So the fact that you're willing to trust me to do this, it meant a lot to me that you come Thank here you. today. It really did. Well, I really, I really trust you as well. And this is why I'm here. And um, yeah, I have been and am pretty private. Um, my family is really important to me and my children and my grandchildren. I have four granddaughters and, and at the same time, um, I've gone through, I've gone through some trauma in my life and I've gone through the fire to get to where I am. And I am here to provide or to have a company that provides services for people to get out of the fire, to get past their trauma and to live a life that is full and to live a life that they feel that they want to have and can have and should have. The idea that we're on earth to suffer is crap. We're here to have a life that is meaningful and why not create that meaning in our life anywhere we can? That was just such a strong ending. <laughs> that was, that was, I wanted to say bullshit. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. I mean, you could have. We, we do allow for we do allow for that here at the myself and the producers of the Good Counsel podcast, which is me. Um, we allow for that kind of we allow for that kind of language here. But uh, Pam, thank you again for so much for coming in and talking to us a little bit and uh, letting people know a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes at Feinberg Consulting. Uh, you know, like I said before, uh, you come from, you have created with your team something that is very exceptional and uh, you are widely respected so it's really you know it's an honor for me that you came in and thank you again so much thank you eric for the opportunity I all right it.